The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, we are in the final week of a series called Vocatio, and in this series we've been looking at God's call in the various spheres of our life. And so we looked at at what it means for for God's call in our work and and the nine to five, what it looks like for us to respond to God's call in that and what it looks like for us to respond to God's call as parents and as leaders. And last week, uh, we treaded the dangerous waters of what it looks like to engage God's call in in politics as citizens in this country. And uh, I think, you know, we all made it out the other side relatively unscathed. I didn't get any... Uh, too abusive email. Actually, I didn't get it. They're all positive, so it's good. Uh, and, and I won't lie to you, though. Last week, if, if you were with us, I was, I was kind of nervous approaching that topic, right? Because it's just a very, it's a very fine line you have to walk. We want to be sure that, that we're, we're true to what Scripture says and that, you know, I'm not getting myself in the way of what I'm trying to say. This is what God's called us to. And so I was just really nervous walking that fine line of talking about a, a potentially uh, hot topic. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? Like, the worst is behind us in this series, right? Like, I'm done. It's going to be easy street. This is the last week. We're good to go. And then I went to, to do message prep uh, for this week. And I got to Ephesians 5, verse 21, which says, Wives, submit to your husbands. And I thought, Gabe, why would you do that to yourself, right? Like, two weeks in a row, two scandalous texts, you know, that are uncomfortable for folks. Why are you doing this? Uh, but I know why. Uh, because... We're looking at God's call in our spheres of life. And if we're looking at God's call in our life as husbands and wives, as as, as spouses, this is the text. This is the text that lays it out as clearly as possible in Scripture. And so so it's where we got to go. And we're going to dig through it and unpack it today. And I'm I'm very excited. Um, And so as we get going, let me say this. uh, As a a young pastor, uh, I do a lot of weddings. Um, It just just happens. Friends think it's cool, and so, you know, we do it. And, uh, but one of my requirements is, is that any, any couple that I marry has to go through pre-marriage counseling. Um, and, and so one of the first things I do if they choose to, to go through it with me is, is I walk through what Scripture says about marriage. Candy, you get to hear this twice. Sorry, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I just did pre-marriage counseling with her on Friday, so she's got to suffer through it twice. Um, but, uh, and, and we walk through uh, what God says about marriage, and, and why do we do that? Because I think our culture is super confused about marriage. Like, I'll ask these younger couples, hey, why are you getting married? We don't really know. Why, why does that happen? Why do we do that? And so then we look inward and we, we try to find the answers in ourselves. Why do people get married? What makes a good marriage? And, and we look at our culture and we look at the ways that we try to answer it and we come up with some, some interesting reasons to say the least, right? Like people get married, it's an it's a evolutionary predisposition towards finding a mate, right? Or maybe another one out there is, is uh, you know, marriage is really sort of an archaic institution. You, we don't really need it. If you want to do it, that's fine, but really it's just sort of archaic, you know, just do whatever you want. Um, or... Or there's the, the sort of um, personal fulfillment, that, that marriage is about my personal happiness, that, that I need to marry this person and find the love of my life in this person, and then I'll be fulfilled, and then I'll be satisfied, and so marriage becomes about me and my happiness. But we all know, right, if we look around us, that if these are our answers, these answers we find within ourselves, we all know they're unsatisfactory, right? They fall apart. They really do. We see this all around us. They fall apart. It's because we're looking inside ourselves to find the answers. We're not looking outside. We're not asking God, how does marriage work? How did you design it? How does this work? We look inside. And, and it makes no sense to do that, right? It'd be like if I let my son, my one-and-a-half-year-old son, Titus, uh, decide what his uh, nutrition should be, right? He'd eat nothing but goldfish crackers, you know, and then he'd turn orange and die. So 
We can't have that. Oh, brother. It's all right. By the way, just a reminder to any new folks here, uh, we celebrate the noise of babies because it reminds us of new life we have, and, uh, and so we're excited. So if you have an issue with that, go somewhere else. Um, so, anyway, so just, just a heads up. Um, anyways, so what are we talking about? Right. Doesn't know what's good for him. And so we need to look outside of ourselves for marriage. We need to look outside of it and then say, God, how did you line up marriage? What's your created intent for marriage? And so whenever I look at these couples, whether they're, they're Christians or not, I always take them to Genesis 2. And I say, this is God's created intent. This is the basic outline for marriage. This is how it works. And we see in our text for today in Ephesians that Paul actually references Genesis 2, that he roots everything he says about how wives are supposed to live and how husbands are supposed to live. He roots that all in Genesis 2, which is what I call the, the biblical blueprint for marriage. And so let's look at that text. It's uh, Ephesians 5, verse 31, and it's a direct quote of Genesis 2. And it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so this is a direct quote of Genesis 2.24. And the context in Genesis is God looks at Adam, he looks at man, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. So I'll make a helper suitable for him that fits for him. And I love this because what he's saying is, listen, man is not made to be, to be a cul-de-sac of my love He's made to be a conduit of it. Man's not made to be a, a reservoir of my love. It's made to be a river in which my love flows from him into another person. And in this case, that other person is, is woman, is Eve. So God says, this is what we're going to do. It's good for man and woman to be together. And so he makes Adam to be with Eve and Eve to be with Adam. And so then this text lays out how that works. And there's three parts to it. Those of you that have maybe heard me talk on marriage before, these, I spend most of my time on this. We won't today. We're going to go quick on this. Uh, but the three parts, basic outline of marriage is this. Leave, cleave. That's the old uh, King James version for hold fast. Leave, cleave, and it rhymes. Uh, become one flesh. Leave, cleave, become one flesh. So first of all, leave. A man leaves his father and mother. We see this in the text. Meaning that when a couple gets married, they leave their family of origin and they start something new. This means mom and dad don't have the primary voice anymore. This means their past, whatever their past was, doesn't dictate their future. This means that they leave, they jump into something new together, that, that in a marriage, God is beginning a new family. A new family is birthed. He's starting something new in marriage. So they leave, and then they cleave. They hold fast. They hold fast to one another. And that's this idea of exclusivity and fidelity. That out of 7 billion people on the planet, you're the one person I've given my life to. You're the one person I hold above all others. You're the one person that I've given all of who I am to. That means I hold you above my job and above my hobbies and above my friends. Here's the big one, above our kids. It means I hold you up above everything else. It's you and me forever. You and no one else. So we leave, we cleave, and it only makes sense that after you do that, that you become one flesh. Become one flesh. And that's, uh, the, the word for one there is ikhad, which is a oneness of multiple parts. And so it's all of you being brought to all of the other person. And so it's fully giving of yourself uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, financially, however it is, you bring it all together and the other person brings all of who they are together and you're one, you're one flesh. And so that's marriage 101, all right? That's the outline. Leave, cleave, become one flesh. We got it? Good? All right. So then Paul takes it up a notch, though. 
Okay, he takes it up and I just says, okay, so this is how marriage works. This is woven into the fabric of creation. But for those of you that follow Jesus, for those of you that have responded to that call, this is what it means for a Christian woman to respond to the call of God in marriage. This is what it means for a Christian man to respond to the call of God in marriage. And that's what we see in Ephesians 5. And he says that for the Christian woman, she needs to take her cues from the church. And for the Christian man, he takes his cues from Christ. And so let's dig into this. Uh, We'll do ladies first, okay? Uh, Look with me at our first few verses. He writes this. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. How are we doing? Okay. We'll walk through it, all right? We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Uh, so let me start, though, first of all. I, I really wanted to frame this text. The reason I have a start at, at verse 20 is because I think oftentimes in your Bibles, if you see it, it actually splits at 21 and 22. And so verse 21 says, uh, everyone submitting to one another uh, out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, there's a new title that says husbands and wives. And then it says wives submit to your husbands. And in the original Greek, in the original manuscript that this would have been written in, there wasn't going to be a header like that. It all just sort of bleeds together. So it's, it's kind of man-made that we divide those up. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's a little confusing in this situation because what's happening is Paul is talking about what it is to walk in, in the spirit. For the church to love one another and to walk in love towards one another, that's what he's talking about early on in Ephesians. And he says, the church itself submits to one another out of reverence for Christ. So all of us who are part of the church, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everyone does it. But then he says, but this is how it breaks down in a marriage. This is what it looks like in a marriage. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And as soon as I say that, I like, see my friends who spell women, you know, with a Y instead of an E. Uh, you guys have friends like that? You got to get out. This is awesome. So you get W-O-M-Y-N. Anyways, um, we'll have a feminism class later. Uh, more on that. So uh, anyways, uh, but they, they're staring daggers at me, right? I see that. And uh, the reality is, though, this text, it has been abused. It's been misinterpreted. It's been used to oppress and subjugate women, and it's terrible. And we don't agree with that. And it's wrong. But that doesn't mean we throw it out. It doesn't mean we say, well, someone misused it. I guess it doesn't count anymore. It's not culturally relevant. I guess it doesn't count anymore. No, we actually dig deep. And we say, well, what is it really saying? What is it really saying? What is is God trying to get across to us in his message here? What does it mean for, for a wife to submit herself to her husband? And so first of all, let's say this. First of all, we see that submission is is not the same thing as subjugation. Submission and subjugation are the same thing. This is something she chooses to do. Paul doesn't say, men, be sure your wives submit. Get her in line. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. He'd never command that. It's something she chooses to do. It's in the middle voice, which is a a reflexive verb. And so it means she chooses to do it for herself. Submit yourself. Choose to do it. Okay, well, what does that mean? What does it mean for a wife to submit herself to her husband? Does that mean like, you know, I can't have an opinion and I just got to scrub the floors all day and, you know, make babies? No, it's not what it's saying. The definition is, is to order yourself under another. 
order yourself under another. It means you recognize that God has ordered the world a certain way. That he's made the husband the head of the household. And it's got nothing to do with a person's worth or with their value or with their abilities or anything like that. It means we recognize that it's an organizational structure that God has outlined. In Luke 2, it talks about how uh, Jesus submits himself to his parents. As a child, he submits himself to his parents. Now, Jesus is arguably the most valuable, most worthy, most influential human being that ever walked the planet of the earth, and yet he submits. And so submission does not take away value or worth. And so we recognize that God has placed the husband as the head of the marriage. And that God has given the man the responsibility to look out for his wife and care for his wife. And when he does that, then the wife responds accordingly. So a wife's call is to recognize that God has ordered things a certain way and respond accordingly. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, to put it simply, that response, I would say, is a posture. It's a posture. It's an inclination to receive and affirm a husband's leadership. You say, well, does that mean I can never initiate, that I just have to sit here and wait for him to come up with a good idea, even if I have a good idea and I just got... No, I mean, let's, don't be stupid, right? I mean, like, let's, let's think clearly about this, but that's, that's what we're talking about. It means we recognize that God has given the responsibility to lead and care for your family to this man, and that God is going to hold him accountable for that. He's going to hold him accountable for that. And so whenever he leads and initiates, affirm that leadership if it's good. If he says, hey, we, you know, we should go to church. Great idea, honey, I'm with you. We, we should read the Bible, we should pray. Great idea, we should maybe go to this restaurant. What do you think? Great idea. It's not just being a yes person, but it's affirming when he steps up in leadership. And can I tell you something? This may make some of you uncomfortable, I get that. But the reality is, we, we actually want this. Like, the world wants this. I have never once heard anyone say, you know what the biggest problem in the world is? Like, too many men are stepping up in their families, right? Too many men are just taking the lead and, and loving their wives and caring for their children and being responsible. I've not heard that one time, right? No one says that. In fact, we live in a world with an epidemic of husbands and fathers who are just bailing out on God's call in their lives. So let's recognize this is very serious, and that a wife's role of, of submitting to a husband's leadership when it's good and he's doing it right is a good thing. It's a powerful thing. And ladies, I'm going to let you in on one more secret. When a man leads, it's very vulnerable for him. There's few things that scare men more than leading. And so if you support him, when you affirm his leadership, it's huge. I remember uh, one time not too long ago, I had to, to make a difficult decision for our church, for leadership in our church. And, uh, and it was really, really hard. And I was just like, beat up and, and I was just racked with self-doubt and I was questioning whether or not it was the right thing to do and just beat myself up. And the, the day after I made this decision, uh, Melissa just sent me a text and she just said, hey, I know that was really hard for you, but, but I believe in you and, and I love you. <laughs> Boom, confidence through the roof, right? Like I was like ready to take on the world, throw at whatever you want, man. My lady thinks I'm awesome, right? It's, it's a good thing. And so, ladies, when, when you recognize and respond to your husband's leadership, it's a beautiful thing. So as I uh, close out the ladies' section, let me just be clear. This relational dynamic that I'm explaining is for a husband and a wife. It's not for all men and all women. It's not for boyfriend and girlfriend. There's a world of difference between a boyfriend and girlfriend and those who have covenanted before Almighty God that they will enter into this relationship. Okay? So... You don't got to follow him, all right? 
Leave them behind, honey. All right? So we're good. Um, so people who've covenanted before God to enter into this specific call, into this specific life together that we call marriage. And I know this idea of submission and headship is, is radically countercultural. Radically countercultural. But please understand that it goes both ways. As radical as it is for the women, it's equally, if not more so, radical for the men. I mean, in this text, I don't know if you caught this, uh, St. Paul, who writes it, he has 41 words for, for the women on how they're to live as wives. He has 116 for the husband on how they're supposed to live. All right, so over twice as much, we need it, right? So let's dig into that. Uh, look with me at Ephesians 5, 25 through 29. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. All right, boys, let's break this down. God's call for you is to love your wife the way that Christ loves the church. Okay? No pressure. All right? Easy. Easy. No, it's incredibly hard, right? Love your wife the way that Christ loves the church. It's even harder than what meets the eye. In, in verse 25, when it says, husbands, love your wives, the word for love there is the word agape, which for those of you that, that grew up in Sunday school, you know that agape is kind of this all-encompassing love that God has for us. It's a God-sized love. And he says, husbands, that's the kind of love you need to have for your wives. And then he says it in the present tense, which means it's not a moment. It's not a moment in time. It's not something you do once. It's something you do and you continue to do no matter what. He's saying, you love and continue to love your wife no matter what. That's on you. And then he says, and then you give yourself up for her the way Christ gave himself up for the church. And when he talks about giving himself up the way Christ gave himself up for the church, this is not just Jesus' general posture of selflessness. It's talking about a specific moment in time. It's talking about the cross. It's talking about Jesus' ultimate moment of self-abandoning love in which Jesus dies for the church. He dies for the people that kill him. He dies for his enemies. And that's the kind of love that a husband is supposed to have for his wife. That husbands, even on her worst day, you love her. Even when you get nothing in return, you love her. That's the call. That's the call. That's the sort of love that husbands are called to have for their wives. So, um, I don't cry during movies. Okay? Uh, but I did once. So, just don't let that get out of here. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was two weeks after Melissa and I got married, and we saw the film uh, In America. Have you guys, anyone ever seen that? Hey, all right. Um, and... Uh, one. Uh, so, um, but in America, it's, it's this film about this, this Irish family. It's, a, it's a, uh, a husband and wife and their two little daughters. And they, they immigrate to uh, the United States and they move to New York City. And, and they're trying to make it. They're these, these immigrants in New York City and they're trying to make it this new city, but things aren't going well. And this dad is just doing everything he can to provide for his family, but it's just not working out. They're living in this like drug-infested, run-down, beat-up apartment in New York City. And it is just hot. It's the middle of the summer. 
And so he finally just gets fed up one day and they don't have any air conditioning. And so he just walks out of the apartment and he's walking and he's about a mile away from his house and he discovers an air conditioning unit in an alley that's being thrown away. And he's like, I'm getting that for my family and we're gonna, we're gonna have some air conditioning. And so he hoists this thing up and, and he drags it through New York and he's, it's so big and he's just sweating and pouring sweat and people are cussing at him because he's getting in the way and he doesn't know where he's going and he, he walks into oncoming traffic and it's just this huge fiasco for him to get to the apartment but he finally, he gets the air conditioner to the apartment, walks a mile carrying this huge thing in the city he doesn't know and he finally gets it and he, he goes to plug it in and right then I just like burst out crying. And it was two weeks after we were married, and Melissa looks at me and she's like, what, like, what is wrong with you? And I was just like, I just want you to know if you ever needed me to carry an air conditioning unit through New York City, I would do it. <laughs> and that was really the first time I just felt the weight that I had signed up for, the weight that God had put on me as the husband of this family. And so I, I tell you that embarrassing story in hopes that y'all recognize the responsibility that God is placing on you, husbands. Hope you recognize that. See, if the wife's call in marriage is to recognize and respond, the husband's call is to sacrifice and initiate. Sacrifice and initiate so that your wife flourishes. Initiate so your wife flourishes. That's what our text says, right? Christ doesn't just sacrifice for the sake of doing it because he's a nice guy. He does it to, to make the church holy, to sanctify the church without blemish in splendor. And that's our call as, as husbands. Initiate and sacrifice so your wife flourishes. So what does that mean? It means you initiate. You initiate romance. You initiate communication. It means, I know you're tired. Turn off the TV. Get up. Take her out to a nice dinner. Listen with your face, right? That's what it means. And it means you initiate the spiritual growth in your family. That you pray for your kids. You pray for your wife. You, novel idea, pray with your wife. This is a statistic I always share with uh, couples during pre-marriage counseling. Couples that pray together every day, not counting mealtime prayers, couples that pray together every day, not counting mealtime prayers, have a 0.5% divorce rate. 0.5% divorce rate. Almost divorce proof. Praying together every day. Pray together. That's on you, men. It's on you to do that. If you're not doing it, I know, that's hard, it's scary, it's awkward, get over it, okay? Grow up. Let's do it. When a husband initiates and sacrifices and a wife recognizes and responds to that and affirms it in love, one of the things we see is that it's a picture of the gospel. People get to see a picture of how God loves his people and how his people love him. That's a beautiful thing. Now, I recognize that as we talk about marriage and as I say all this, it's a very painful topic for some of you, perhaps many of you, uh, where you say, hey, uh, my marriage didn't work like that, or my marriage doesn't work like that, and I don't see that changing. My, my wife doesn't really respond when I initiate, or my husband doesn't sacrifice so that I can flourish. It's a nice rosy picture you've painted up there, Pastor, but let's get real. Like, my marriage didn't or it doesn't look anything like that. And I don't see that changing. So if that's you, look with me at, at verse 32 in our text. It says this, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says this mystery is profound. And so what mystery is he talking about? 
mystery he's talking about is, is the reality is people have been getting married since the beginning of time. But Paul's saying, we had no idea how big of a picture this marriage was about. We had no idea that it pointed to Christ and the church. How amazing is it that our little marriages point to the cosmic reality of God's love for his people? This is incredible. And see, I think that helps put our marriages in perspective. See, for a lot of people, marriage becomes the ultimate thing. Becomes the ultimate thing. And so we say, we look to our spouses then and we say, well, they, if it's the ultimate thing, they need to be the perfect lover. And we turn our spouses into our redeemers and into our saviors. And we expect so much from them. And then when they don't deliver, then we hold back from where we've been called. We hold back from what God's called us to do. And so we don't get this picture that Paul paints for us. But if we look to the mystery of Christ in the church first, if we look to Jesus' love for you as part of his people first, it changes how you approach your marriage. The uh, French novelist uh, Proust says this, mystery is not about traveling to new places, but looking with new eyes. Not about traveling to new places, but looking with new eyes. See, when you look at Jesus' love for you first, you look at your spouse with new eyes. Look at your spouse with new eyes. And you don't need to have the perfect spouse because you have the perfect lover in Jesus. And that's a love then that empowers you to love the way that you've been called. I remember a couple months before we got married, uh, Melissa and I were at her parents' house and we were up late one night uh, cuddling on the couch. Remember engaged couples, it's just gross. And, uh, and so, so we're doing that and, and we're talking and I'm staring at her, her parents' front door and I remember I just said to her, I said, you know, I just think like the most loving thing I could do for you is if someone came through that door looking to harm you, like I would do anything I could to get in the way of, of them hurting you. Even if it meant like me dying, laying down my life, I'd do whatever I could uh, to protect you. I said, I think that's the most loving thing I could do for you. I said, what, what's the most loving thing you could do for me? And, uh, and she said, well, I guess I, I think about it like this. She said, if everything fell apart for you, that if you just like bottomed out and you were like at your lowest, I'd still want to be there and I'd still want to support you and care for you in the midst of that. And I know it's just anecdotal, it's just a conversation between my wife and I, but, but I think we see something there that, that men oftentimes the way we want to show love is through uh, protection and through sacrifice. And that oftentimes uh, for women, they want to show love through empathy and care. And friends, do you see that on the cross... Jesus is the perfect embodiment of both of those kinds of love. That on the cross, Jesus sacrifices and protects you. He lays himself out for you to save you from God's wrath, to save you from sin, death, and the devil. He takes on the death that we deserved, that you might be saved, that you might be delivered, that you might experience God's love. But he doesn't just sacrifice for us. He shows us his love by entering into our suffering, by entering into our sin. It says in scripture that Jesus became sin for us. This means that every dark place you've been in, every time things seem to have fallen apart, every time the world looks like a mess, Jesus is in the midst of that. Comforting and guiding and presence. And we know that because he was there for us on the cross. He was there for you on the cross. So Jesus is a perfect lover. You find your love in him first. Put your trust in him first. Put your hope in him first. 
And then when you do that, you're empowered to love your spouse the way that God has called you to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, marriage is hard. It's a gift, it's a joy, but sometimes it's hard, Lord. We need your wisdom. We need your grace. We need your guidance. Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends, I pray for their marriages, that they'd be strong, that husbands would respond to their call, that wives would respond to theirs. Lord, that our marriages would be a picture of the gospel, of the love you have for us. Lord, teach us to do that. And Lord, I pray for my friends whose marriages already haven't gone well and they're in a painful spot. I pray that we'd be a church that loves them and supports them and cares for them just like you do for us, Lord. Point us to you, point us to Jesus, our perfect lover. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.